So let's talk about the main three things that you can do to adjust uh, a negative affect state. The, they fall into the three categories, lifestyle changes, cognitive approaches, and understanding the functional elements of bad moods. And that's actually, I'll say, last. So lifestyle changes roughly fall into what the Buddha called right action. Uh, in the 1980s, positive psychologists started funding a lot of uh, baseline happiness tests, which study what are the elements that creates mood resilience in people, people who generally are somewhat immune to the vagaries of bad moods, who generally report steady baseline states of, of general well-being, ease, um, uh, a lack of negative thoughts. And uh, the two most important factors that were found is one, feeling that one's livelihood or work is in some way benefiting the greater good. So if you uh, feel that your job is in some way to the benefit of others, uh, it will make you feel more connected to the tribe. Human beings are naturally social beings. We have been hardwired by evolution to uh, have right hemispheres that reward us for pro-social actions. Every time you do something that's to the benefit of the tribe to which you're connected, it, it, your right hemisphere literally is set up to cre create positive affects, which means you're, you're wired to feel better about yourself. Why is this? Well, in our ancestral past, the people who shared their resources and took care of the sick and took actions that didn't just benefit benefit itself but benefited the group were more likely the people who would find their actions reciprocated they'd be taken care of they would be kept in the center of the tribe they would most likely reproduce those who were found out as being selfish and driven purely by um, their individual needs above the tribes probably would have been uh, abandoned fairly quickly. So we have it somewhat uh, deeply wired to be altruistic. And if you're wondering, well, why is it that it seems that the world is not a very altruistic place if we're hardwired to be altruistic? And actually, believe it or not, the studies by Steven Pinker and other people have shown that in fact, over our evolutionary history, we have, in fact, become more charitable, altruistic beings. Sure, there's still a lot of violence in the world, but our species is moving in a direction of greater altruism, doing it very slowly, but heading in that direction. Um, the second main factor is, besides feeling that your work is in some way benefiting the greater good, um, is to feel deeply emotionally connected with other people that you can disclose your feelings to. It's not deeply connected to people who fix or solve you or give you instructions or tell you what to do. It's simply that feeling that there are other people out there who know what's going on with you. Um, <coughs> Ever since we are infancy, 
the infant's brain, even more than it seeks food, even more than it seeks even security, it seeks to be, as one uh, famous psychologist put it, seen in the eyes of the other, which means we desperately want to have our emotions, which is how we connect with other people at the beginning of life, seen by other people. Infants don't seek to have their, uh, their parents actually uh, tell them what to do. They seek to have their emotions read and mirrored back by another uh, caring person. That triggers the release of serotonin, which makes us feel safe and protected. We are deeply social beings in that we not only are hardwired to feel better about taking pro-social actions, but we're also hardwired to feel better about when we connect with other people and when other people share their emotions with us. Uh, one uh, uh, great psychologist, Robin Dunbar, who's an, who studies the anthropology of, um, uh, who studies psychology from an anthropological perspective, has studied different uh, tribal systems from a transcultural perspective and has shown that across time systems across uh, the globe, communities tend to break down not just in certain sizes, but people tend to fare better emotionally when they have about four or five people in their life that c creates a close support group. And we, he's shown that over and over again, that sort of magic five people. And most of us in the West don't have five. We, we have a few people that know us very well, but to reach that five people who really know how we feel, what our fears are, what our anxieties are, what we're worried about, it takes a lot of work and effort because we live in a very individualist culture which sings the praises of self-sufficiency. And that song that validates that cultural bias towards self-sufficiency comes at a great psychological expense to us all. We are not creatures that in any way deeply feel better in the long term by achieving self-sufficiency. We actually are beings that feel better when we achieve reliable connection. So... Um, that's what I'll say about lifestyle changes. If you feel you're in a job that's really kind of dumb, <laughs> and, but you can't right now look for another job, or you just feel that right now you just can't take the step out, at least see if you can, outside of work, find some kind of endeavor, uh, volunteer effort, anything. Studies have shown, uh, I read the study that, that people who even do uh, a few hours a month of volunteerism actually are far more resilient to negative moods than people who don't do any volunteerism whatsoever. So it's not just for the cultural good, it's actually for your own lasting um, balance, emotional balance. And certainly the Buddha over and over and over again emphasized the importance in his teachings on right effort uh, at right action, how important it is to not give in to uh, just seeking um, 
essentially working on one's own self-interest, but to actually take actions that are the, to the benefit of those around us. It's kind of one of his most central. In fact, in Eastern Buddhism, the first thing they teach children is uh, charitable works before they teach them the Dharma, before they teach them to meditate. And many monks I've studied with marvel how in the States we teach people first meditation. Uh, because they think that's backwards, that the fundamental um, boost that comes about through spiritual practice is the groundwork is laid by doing some kind of pro-social volunteer or ethically-based action. So the second group is uh, cognitive approaches. I've read that we have, it's a startling amount, 12,000 thoughts every day which is uh, not only mind-boggling in itself, uh, but also given that any one of those thoughts can really screw us up. Uh, anyone can be like the uh, TNT that we throw into a crowded room. That's a terrible metaphor. I'm doing what I can. Um, but any one of those can be the trigger that floods the mind with obsessive fears, that replicates until it becomes a mental virus. Um, if we don't have good cognitive etiquette, um, we leave ourselves very wide open to having any one of these thoughts become uh, essentially uh, a replicating uh, meme, as Dawkins would put it, that will just cause endless suffering for us. So the first the first type of cognitive etiquette is to beware of what's called globalizing. Globalizing is when we turn an isolated incident into a view of our entire identity. It goes like this. We make a mistake. We uh, send an email that we shouldn't have sent, or we, make, uh, we do something wrong at our job or we get dumped in a relationship, we go through it one single incident, and we don't leave it at, oops, I made a mistake, or oops, that kind of didn't feel very good. Instead, we go, oops, I made a mistake. Damn, I'm always making mistakes. I'm a complete failure. <laughs> that process of taking the incident and then exaggerating how often it happens, and, turn, and then turning it into what the Buddha called Sakaya Diddy, an identity belief, a story about our personality. I'm the unlovable one. I'm the person who just can't get my stuff together. I'm the person who, you know, has the broken picker in relationships. I'm the person who uh, is bad with finances. I'm, I'm the person who, anytime we find ourselves doing that, or... I can't, or I'm of the nature, or I, anything that globalizes us uh, has a tendency then to not only create limiting self-beliefs, but it is such an obvious um, source of suffering. In the Buddha's first lesson to his seven-year-old son, Rahula, the first thing he addresses is when you make a mistake, don't beat yourself up. Don't turn it into a story about yourself. Just find someone who is forgiving. Talk about it. And 
just say, just make a mental note not to do it again. That's it. And interestingly enough, this kind of view permeates Buddhist cultures. When, when somebody in the States uh, gets convicted of a felon, uh, felony, uh, they are known from that point on as a felon. Somebody who commits a burglary is given an identity as a burglar. In Eastern countries, the moment somebody uh, uh, essentially addresses um, the crime that they've committed, they're no longer tagged, and they have a much more humane way of approaching um, uh, this. They don't essentially, you know, it doesn't follow people around uh, the way it does in the West as an identity belief. So, one of the most important ways to not fall into this tendency of, of turning isolated incidents into negative views of our self, which creates, of course, uh, poor self-esteem, is obviously to develop some form of forgiveness practice. Now, uh, a lot of people struggle with that. We live in a uh, culture that doesn't particularly prioritize the value of forgiveness. Um, a lot of the people I've worked with over the last 11 years of doing one-on-one -on -one work with people, I find in general that um, a, lo a lot of people arrive in spiritual practice without any understanding of the value of learning how to forgive, which doesn't mean that somebody is let off the hook for bad behavior. Uh, somebody who uh, who uh, causes harm has to live with the karmic repercussions and the legal repercussions. And our forgiving is simply acknowledging that isolated incidents do not mean an entire person's existence is a mistake. When we do that, when we encounter someone... Uh, and we immediately dislike them because they, uh, they start talking in ways that we view to be exasperating or unskillful. Or we, you know, we encounter somebody where we work who's a pain in the ass. And we think, oh, what an ass. We don't realize it, but we're training ourselves in that very moment to, um, to essentially develop the bad cognitive habits of conflating isolated contextual actions into an entire view of a person's identity. And the problem is, if we do it to other people, we will do it to ourselves. I wish I could say that the brain was a finely tuned instrument where we could say, okay, I'm going to be really unforgiving about other people, but I will be completely... And there are certain cognitive distortions where people are more likely... Uh, Albert, Albert Ellis showed, people are more likely to forgive themselves a little bit, but in general, people who are completely unforgiving with other people are unforgiving with themselves. So it's a great way to, to diminish that tendency of piling it on in life when we make a mistake or when we get fired or we get dumped or we uh, can't find a freelance gig or when we find ourselves overwhelmed with bills or whatever, if we don't want to turn that into a view of 
I'm not, I'm, I'm screwing up my life. If we don't want to conflate it, then the first thing to do is to examine our resentments and start forgiving people there. We will find then we will naturally start to forgive ourselves. Um, Non-identification with thoughts is a huge, huge topic in the Buddha's Dharma. There's this tendency, as the Buddha said, to view thoughts that arise in our head as our own. These are my thoughts. And the first thing to note is that actually, from a very straightforward psychological perspective, your thoughts are actually not your own. Whether you view it from a Dawkins perspective of means, or you simply look at where thoughts originate. Where do thoughts, you say, Josh, originate? Well, actually, <laughs> the... <laughs> I'm helping you with this. I'm priming you. Josh, where do thoughts begin? Well, as the great Russian childhood development um, psychologist Lev Vygotsky uh, found, children internalize and develop thoughts from the words their parents say to them. We don't develop thoughts on our own. We copy and replicate and reproduce over and over those early statements our parents say. Don't eat the cookies. Don't run in the hall. Don't cross the street when it's red. Don't play with your sister's toys. Don't pull, pull the dog's tail. Don't do this. Don't do that. So we start out in life with a lot of felt, authentic, what... what um, uh, um, can't remember his name, said um, uh, the true self is felt. Our, our impulses are felt. We don't need to turn them into language. Our authentic self is felt. But the words, the ideas, they are societally implanted uh, uh, essentially messages that are there to keep us from all the time acting out on our impulses. And sometimes that's a great idea. I mean, if we didn't have thoughts and frontal lobes that could inhibit us from following every single impulse, we'd probably be running around naked, throwing our feces at <laughs> people. Stranger. All right, I'm just talking about myself. Not talking about you. None of you would ever do that. That's disgusting. All right. But we would be doing a whole bunch of things that weren't a very good idea. In fact, the thing that most separates the human species from every other species is the size of our frontal lobe. What does our frontal lobe do? It simply is there to inhibit the rest of the brain from acting out on its impulses. So it's a good thing that the frontal lobe with its language capabilities is capable of saying, hey, wait a second, buddy, that's not such a smart idea. <laughs> but on the other hand, that voice, because it's power hungry, like every other neural circuit in the brain, it wants to fire as much as possible. It doesn't just stop with the good ideas. It will keep going and it will say things like, oh, you really messed up. You're a complete failure. Why do you even bother? Don't apply for that job. Nobody will like you there anyway. You're not, you're not talented enough. What are you thinking? What is the matter with you? Why did you just say that? Those people don't like you. Why did you come to this party? What the hell? Leave now while we're behind. Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> so, uh, 
So it, it doesn't know when to stop, in other words. It just keeps going. So not identifying with thoughts means that we still hear the messages, but we don't, we don't always believe them to be necessarily true, or we don't mistake them to be our core, authentic self. We examine them, and then when we keep a distance from them, we can then ask ourselves, is this a thought that I would tell anybody else that I cared about? If I would tell somebody else, oh, you're sad, you're having a hard time, it's time to do something self-soothing and reach out to a friend, yes, I would say that to a friend, then you follow that thought. But on the other hand, if it's a thought that goes like, oh, you just got dumped from a relationship. I guess we should give up ever finding love in this world. <laughs> Would you ever say that to a friend? Hopefully you wouldn't. So having these good cognitive um, protocols where we don't fall into these habits of globalizing thoughts or taking them to be our own. Finally, with this, uh, it's good to undermine negativity bias. The brain, even though we are, are, are somewhat wired up to be social beings, we are also, interestingly enough, wired up to focus on all the threats and all the imminent catastrophes in life, because obviously um, our ancestors, not only the ones who connected well survived, but the ones who worried a lot survived as well. We are in a far different situation now. We don't have to be worrying our entire lives. We're actually now a species that's pretty much safe all the time. Most of us on our way home will not be eaten tonight. <laughs> Most, I say. So um, the brain, though, still has ingrained on it a tendency to... Uh, inflate the amount of negatives in our lives. It only takes about a half a second for a negative experience to lodge itself in memory. It takes about 12 seconds for a positive experience to be uh, essentially inscribed in long-term memory. What that means is we, one, have to soak in all those experiences in life that are not negative so that we won't fall into the belief that we are always in a negative state. Uh, part of what keeps negative affects or bad moods going is we believe, oh, I'm always in a bad mood. I'm always in a negative state. And if we simply note the amount of time and drink it in and soak in the amount of sensations during the day when we're not, in fact, in a negative, bad mood, it can actually help elevate our view of our experience and actually change our experience because uh, the way we perceive our lives actually changes our lives. So, for example, uh, during the day there are all these neutral sensations that most of us don't pay any attention to. The waking up, the putting on clothes, tying shoes, waiting for the subway, waiting for an elevator, waiting to... Uh, have you know sitting in a room waiting to meet with someone all those moments those downtimes where there's actually nothing negative going on which we tend to overlook because we tend to naturally focus on emotionally vibrant times the buddha really emphasized being aware of what he called neutral feeling states uh, also being aware of those even when you're in a bad mood 
a period where you're in a negative affect, there will be times during the day where you're experiencing pleasurable sensations, taking a shower, coming home, lying on the couch, uh, having a cup of tea, uh, I don't know what, searching through Netflix. <laughs> Whatever it is, there are times that we often overlook as well. Because again, the brain naturally gravitates towards threat. So we have to train the mind when we're in bad mood states to notice those positive moments. And finally, before we move on to functional understanding, HALT, which is a 12-step acronym, which means when you have a negative thought, a negative idea, ask yourself first, am I hungry? angry, lonely, or tired. It's a great acronym. In fact, it is the only good acronym that AA ever produced. <laughs> I can say that with authority. But it's actually worth considering when we have a really fearful thought, uh, have, uh, have I eaten enough? Am I hungry? Have, uh, is there a resentment that I haven't felt? Am I really angry with someone and I haven't allowed myself to attend to that? Am I lonely? Am I, have I been disconnected for a long time? And tired. This is two things. Have I slept enough? And two, also, any thought I have after 9 p.m., I don't take seriously. <laughs> I really don't. I really don't. This started in previous relationships where people, you're in a relationship, and right when you get into bed, somebody's like, about what you said five hours earlier. <laughs> And we've all done that to other people. So, uh, so the practice for me is when it comes up after nine, I simply write it down and I make a promise to myself that if it's still important tomorrow, then I'll address it. I've yet to experience a thought after 9 p.m., by the way, that was uh, earth-shakingly important that I had to drop everything. It's just my mind that makes those thoughts seem so important. So finally, the last category is a functional understanding of bad moods, which means beyond just dealing directly with the symptoms of the bad mood or the thoughts that create it, it's also worthwhile understanding what role does a, bad mood, does a series of bad moods have in our life? What functional role are they playing? The human mind doesn't have affect states or moods that arise with any regularity that serve no purpose whatsoever. In fact, there is no emotional state that we experience that serves no purpose. We like to think of bad moods as symptoms we want to get rid of, but actually all bad moods have a function to them. For example, I'll use my own life. I grew up in a violent childhood with a father who was deeply... Uh, unpredictable, abusive, he would beat up my mom, he would beat up, um, he would drag me out of bed in the middle of the night, slap me, make me take showers, and uh, it was a pretty horrific environment, and I developed a chronic depression at around the age of eight, I was in therapy by that point, and one of the things I came to realize over the years of uh, therapy and looking back on it is that being depressed served a functional role in my life. It allowed me to escape the violence and the chaos of my environment. 
it actually was essentially like a, um, a foxhole or a way that I could find shelter from parents that were constantly at each other's throats. So it was, for me, an effort to achieve security, an effort to get out. And I've found over the years working with people one-on-one -on -one that uh, negative affects can serve many purposes. They can be ways to tell people to stay away when we're feeling overwhelmed. So some people in their jobs, when they feel overwhelmed in their jobs, they develop bad moods as a way of saying, don't ask me for anything. I've got too much going on. I can't process any more requests. So that's the function of the bad mood. Or the function of the bad mood can be in a relationship where we feel that we can't naturally pay attention or serve the role in our relationship that we normally serve. We can get in a bad mood as a way to say, I'm not available right now. Or we can, um, we can believe that being in a, a low self-esteem bad mood in some way it can be motivating. It serves the function of, of pushing us to take action in life. So why am I bringing this up? Because I've found that in working with people that if we can understand the functional role that a bad mood takes in their life, we can then, as the Buddha taught with Yoniso Manasikara, he said, you can, if you see the attributes or the... Um, what role uh, unskillful behavior serves, what role it's there for, you can then find skillful ways to address those needs. So, for example, at work, if I use a bad mood as a way to keep people away from me, I can instead develop a clear communication where I say to my colleagues, look, I need to have between 10 and lunchtime as I just cannot be bombarded with messages and people coming in and asking me for stuff. If you need stuff, I can set aside a time. We can work with other people to make clear signals about when we are just overwhelmed. We can, in relationships or in other situations, we can uh, develop tools that will make us feel safer rather than resort to using negative affects as a way to protect ourselves. Uh, in my own family, I found that by the time I was 13, the safer way to get my needs met was simply was to connect with people outside of my family where there wasn't as much violence so that I could get my interpersonal needs met and I didn't have to always resort to being in a depressed state to stay safe from other people. So understanding, investigating the role, what what purpose a negative affect is meeting can be very, very useful, and I encourage you to investigate that as well. I thank you for listening. I hope it was worthwhile.